Aunt Lucina Chatfield lived on Chatfield Hill, but no one lives there now, and no one ever will. Those You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on January 13th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Second Chances. Music was performed by Julie Copens. And those who made their clearing are numbered with the dead. A house they built, a barn they made. Their children came and rocked and played. Our first speaker tonight is Jennifer Mannix. Jennifer is a West Coast girl who grew up in Northern California and Nevada and moved to Juneau in 1989. She's worked for CBJ in different jobs for a very long time. (laughs) She has a wonderful wife and daughter, as well as two awesome dogs and a cool but shy cat. She loves standing up in front of over 200 people. when she sings with the Juno Pride Chorus, but standing up here by herself to tell a story is a crazy new endeavor. Please welcome Jennifer Mannix. I turned 35 on December 4th, 2004. And on that day, I made what has been the hardest decision I've had to make in my life so far, but also the most important. And I started a new life for myself then. 35 is a significant age for me, because that's how old my mom was when she died. Not a lot of kids lose a parent when they're young, so it's, it's not something most people can relate to. I was nine years old when my mom died. We were driving from Truckee, California, to San Carlos, which is near San Francisco. And we we were going to visit my grandma because my grandpa had just died a few months before, and my mom wanted to spend some time with her. So it's a really snowy Saturday morning, and we're driving over the Donner Donner Pass in our little Toyota, and we're slipping a lot. So mom decides that we're going to pull over and put chains on. She and my brother Greg, he's 16 at the time, they get out to put chains on, and they, they let me stay in the warm car. So I'm just sitting in the back seat, eating my cheese and crackers, and feeding them to my dog Zach next to me. And then there was this jolt to the car, and a loud noise, and it shook. And I didn't really think anything of it. I I didn't know what to think of it, so I just sat there and I kept eating. And then I noticed out the front window that there was something in the snow that I I don't think it was there before. And it was moving, maybe. So... I I decided to check it out because something wasn't right. So I walk around to the front of the car and I realized that what I'd seen through the window was my brother and he was lying in the snow. He was hurt. And then I realized that at the front of the car was my mom. She was lying in the snow and I went to, to check on her and she wasn't moving either and there was some blood in the snow. We had been hit by a pickup truck that lost control in the snow. And my mom died that day. My brother was seriously hurt, but he would be okay. He survived. My dad was playing his Saturday morning golf game in Reno. Um, My mom and dad had been divorced for a few years, so he was an every other weekend dad. And so he's playing his golf game in Reno, and he gets a phone call, and this is well before cell phones. So he gets a phone call at the golf course, and they tell him, your kids just lost their mom. You need to come. They need you to come take care of them. 
So here we are, it's my dad and my brother and I, and we're, we're totally in shock and we're, we're thrust into this horrible new reality and no idea how to deal with it. So as a nine-year-old, I just, I just didn't. I put my head down and I, I just carried on. I tried to act like everything was normal and no big deal, no big change in my life. And I wasn't like that for a long, long time. And we had a lot of change throughout the next few years. My brother went off to college after getting out of high school and my dad and I moved to Reno and my, my future stepmom came into the picture shortly after. That's the other Jennifer Mannix. I'm still not over that. And then puberty happened. That was awesome. <laughs> so I get out of high school and I go off to college. I live in Oregon for a couple years and then I came up here to Juneau. And about the time I was 20, I, I fell in love and I settled down and I got into this relationship. It was the most serious relationship I'd ever been in. And it was, it was secure. It provided the security and, and safety and comfort that I just was so longing for at the time. And, and it ended up being a 14-year relationship, and it was, I lived there, I lived in one place longer than I'd ever lived anywhere else. It was, it was exactly what I needed until it stopped being that. And it became a, an unhealthy relationship, and I became a really unhappy person. But the idea of venturing out into some other life that was unknown and unpredictable was, was so scary to me that I stayed. I stayed for a long time, and... And it was when I turned 35 that it, it was an immediate realization that I don't know how much longer I have. My mom didn't get any more than this, and, and I deserved to be happy. I had a three-year-old at the time who, you know, if I needed to get myself in a better place and, and figure out how to be happy so I could be a better mom to her so that I could actually enjoy the experience of raising her, being a parent. And so... I found the strength I didn't know I had, and I, I made this change that was so hard at the time, and it was such a challenging time. But since then, I've been growing and learning about myself so much ever since. And I, I've realized that I had been downplaying the significance of my mom's death for so, so long that it's really shaped so much of who I am, and I, I'm still figuring out all the different ways. But, but the root of it is that this, I have this fear of the unknown, and, and to me that takes a form of, of being so afraid of, of something bad happening to me or someone I care about, and it's, it's all-consuming sometimes, and it's even paralyzing, and it's very hard to, to not let that rule my life. But I've also been learning through this journey that I've been learning about myself. I, I figured out that I can turn it into a positive. I mean, I'm getting all these years that my mom never had. And it's, it's a really cool thing. I've, I've learned how to, I've surrounded myself with amazing friends. I have a cool contingent here tonight and, and, and lots of family, wonderful family and, and so much love and joy. And, and, and I, just, I just appreciate life so much now. And, and I've had three grandparents live into their 90s, so I've got great genes. <laughs> so I'm gonna stick around for a while. And now I'm working on the next 35 years. Yeah. Our next speaker is Miguel Rohrbacher. Miguel was born in Juneau and raised in Douglas. Know the distinction. He's attempted to leave three times and has been thwarted at each turn. On Saturday, he's moving off the big island to downtown to live with his girlfriend, Becca, and away from his parents, 
Speaking of moving, does anyone have a truck? Miguel could use it. Please help me welcome him to the stage. Uh, when I heard about second chances, I thought of those moments in your life where there's a before this happened and an after this happened, kind of like a, a born-again experience. And I'm a Catholic, and we don't really do born-again, but this is kind of the closest in my life that I can think of. So I went, to, I went to college up in Anchorage after high school. I went to UAA, and I thought, oh, this is great. But I figured, oh, I'll go to college out of state. So I decided I was going to go to the University of Kentucky which was a, a culture, ch culture shock. Um, so I, I showed up in Kentucky off the Greyhound bus. I rode from Portland to Kentucky because I figured I want to see the whole country. It was 100 bucks, and it's definitely not worth it. Uh, <laughs> let's just say you get, you get your money's worth. So I showed up in Kentucky. I moved into this apartment that I had set up. I had a, a roommate from Juneau, and we got another roommate from the DC area, and his nickname, was Koki Cat, which should have been our first clue. So, so it was me, um, my roommate from Juno, and Koki Cat all living in this apartment. So as we found out, Koki Cat wasn't a great guy. Probably the, the biggest purchases of his um, legal purchases were Ziploc bags, and there was a, the first electric scale I'd ever seen. And I, I, recognized, this from, I recognized this from my... Uh, time in Mr. Smith's biology class. I said, oh, that's an electric scale. Um, so you can imagine uh, Koki Cat wasn't using this for biological experiments. Um, so we had upstairs roommates who were from Kentucky, and they were going to the community college there, and they were also uh, big buyers of plastic bags. And I got the sense that they were frustrated with some of the stuff that Koki Cat was doing in, in the building. Um, but I figured I, I've been raised to be a non-judgmental person. I shouldn't. So, so I continued to live there, um, and we thought the situation would be fine. So one day, I woke up uh, bright and early at about 1 in the afternoon. Um, I was getting a phone call from my upstairs neighbor, Logash, and he asked if Koki Cat was home. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I haven't been up yet. So, um, so I didn't check, and I, I put my phone away, and I think went back to sleep or something. About 10 minutes later, I heard banging on the door, on the front door. And I thought, oh, that, that doesn't sound like good banging on the door. So I decided not to answer the door. Um, <laughs> and our, our apartment was four attached rooms, or four, four rooms that had doors to a kind of common area. So... I heard a commotion at the door and yelling and swearing and all sorts of stuff. So I opened up my bedroom door to the, the main living room and I saw three guys um, who kind of looked like my upstairs neighbors um, wearing ski masks and kind of matching gray sweatsuits. <laughs> and they all had guns. They all had, um, they all had, had pistols and they had my my roommate, Koki Cat, in the, in the middle of the living room. Um, so uh, they were pointing guns all over the place. I, I closed my door and locked it. <laughs> so I said, oh, I've got my phone, so I'm calling the police. And they didn't say anything. They were busy um, beating up my, uh, my roommate. And they were saying things to him like, we're going to kill you, and 
where's the money and all this kind of thing. So they came and they left and and then I, I opened the door to my bedroom and um, he was kind of shaken up. He was uh, standing in his underwear and he had blood all over him. There was blood all over the walls because, so at this point I'd forgotten I'd called the police. The police showed up um, and our apartment had kind of a balcony. So everybody who lived there on the street and in the building could see that the police were at our apartment. Um, so they came in, and I was very stressed out. They were very stressed out. They, they left. Um, my roommate from Alaska and I thought, wow, we shouldn't live in this apartment anymore. This is probably a bad life choice to be living in this apartment. So we talked to the people at the university, and they found us an apartment in what's known at the University of Kentucky as Chinatown. Anyway, so that evening, we, we, were, we were feeling great. We were moving out of this apartment, and we were going to start our lives over, a second chance, if you will. So we decided to go um, to Raising Cane's uh, Chicken Strips Restaurant in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and we sat down and were eating our meal when Logash, the guy who, came, who uh, gave me a call, came and um, sat down in our booth. And we said, oh, hi, Logash, how are you doing? And he said, oh, hi. Uh, did you hear that you guys were robbed? And we said, yeah, yeah, I did. We were, I was there this morning. And he said, oh, oh, I just heard about it. And he was, he was roommates with the person who we thought had done this. And he was, um, he was sitting there, and then his friend DJ White Owl sat down with us. And he said, oh, well, it'd probably be good if you didn't talk to the police. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, you're not from here, and bad things could happen. So we, we said, oh, that's, that's not good. And he was like, no, really, I'm serious. Don't talk to the police. Have you? And we said, no. But we had about um, like three or four hours earlier. So that night, we decided that we didn't want to live in Kentucky anymore. <laughs> um, before this, I, wasn't, I, was like, I was like, I'm a, I'm a rational person. I'm not going to make any rash decisions like leave overnight a state that I'm going to college in. So I called the county sheriff who had been assigned to our case. And he was like, who are you again? And I was like, oh, remember you were at my house today? Guns, all that. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I told him, I was like, I'm, re I'm really worried to be walking around. I mean, what if, what if they find out that I talked to you and then one of these people sees me? And he said, his words were, he said, well, I can understand why you'll be scared walking around. But now you'll understand what it's like to be a woman. And I said, I said, oh, oh, oh my goodness. Well, um, thank you for the, the help and support. So that night we decided, one, we weren't going to live in Kentucky anymore. And we pulled up to our um, apartment at about 7.30 the next morning. And we each packed up a bag of stuff and threw it into this red Corvette that my other roommate, that our roommate had bought while he was there, and we decided to head back to Alaska. So we threw our bags in this and drove all day and all night to Dallas, and we, we drove to Arizona, and then we flew, we left the Corvette in Arizona um, at my friend's mom's house, and then we flew up to Seattle and then, and then on to Juneau. And I was a little bit kind of dazed. I mean, this all happened in the course of two days. Um, so, so we arrived in Juneau, got off the plane, the Thunder Mountain Big Band was playing um, at the airport, and 
in terms of second chances, Juno's been great. Um, and uh, here I am today, second chance. So <laughs> thanks a lot. Our next speaker tonight is Heather Ridgway, Bristol Bay Fisher Girl, exchange student in Norway, English teacher in Japan. Heather Ridgway has had more than one chance at life's diverse offerings. Perseverance Theater originally brought her to Juno from Anchorage as a design intern in 1994. She is regularly thrilled to be teaching high school art here in one of the most beautiful little cities in the world. Anybody here drive a stick? Yeah, I'm pretty proud of the fact I can drive a stick. But you remember that like really awkward trying to get the timing of the clutch? That's tough. But you get over it eventually and, and things start rolling and you get confident and suddenly it's all about the road. You know, nothing behind you, everything before you, as is ever so on the road. Um, when I was 18, I hung out tight with a group of guys that loved Jack Kerouac. We would drive around Anchorage at all hours, challenging each other with our emotionally charged political social ideals about everything in the world. But at 18, I also had a full load of general ed classes at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And that's where Mark Ridgway comes in. I'm uh, in a lecture hall, big lecture hall. Logic 101 is just about to begin for the first day. And this guy with eyes the color of his faded blue jeans, framed by Buddy Holly glasses, ambles in a little late, steers his way up, and parks right next to me. I saw the pen in his pocket when he asked if he could borrow a pencil. <laughs> then he needed a piece of paper. And by the end of the semester of Logic 101, Mark Ridgway never bought the book. True to his character, he drove a Triumph Spitfire convertible. And when it didn't run, he would borrow my VW Bug. Because we both drove a stick. So we could trade keys at Logic 101 and run errands. Sometimes we'd run them together. And if you asked me at the time, I would have admitted that Mark Ridgway made my engine purr. <laughs> and then the following semester, we'd run into each other on campus occasionally. But we never bothered to arrange anything intentional. At the end of the spring semester, we discovered we had a friend in common. She invited us both to her cabin in Homer to celebrate the end of the school year. But we didn't figure out very well how we would get there, though we promised we'd go together. I show up at his house at 10 AM, and he looks at my car, and I look at his. Then we ran for the phone to see if we could get a ride with somebody else. We were too late. We almost didn't go. But we just sat on our porch for a little while and looked at the convertible and the top wouldn't go up, the Volkswagen Bug with the fenders bungee corded on, and we decided that maybe the convertible Spitfire would make it there and back in one piece. We just have to borrow a squeegee on the way out of town from the gas station because it was raining and the windshield wipers didn't work. And we had to stop every 40 minutes or so to let the engine cool down. So it took us about 14 hours to get to home. <laughs> By the time we got there, the party was asleep. 
the gracious hostess rose to show us to the last available quarters, which was a mattress on the floor of a treehouse. We didn't look at each other as we threw down our sleeping bags and turned around and went to the beach to start a fire. And we sang every song we knew until it got light, and then we went back to the treehouse and we held hands in separate sleeping bags and sang ourselves to sleep. Wasn't very long after that, Mark came by my house late at night with something urgent to ask me. We drove down to the park, parked the Spitfire, and he asked me if I would go with him. <laughs> go with him? I don't think anybody had asked me that since fifth grade. I was so excited. But I kind of been test driving this other model and I had to park that first. So I said, can I have a couple days to think about it? He was really sore. He dropped me on my front lawn and drove off saying, I'm going to school in Washington in the fall anyway. I'll probably never see you again. Squealed his tires as he zoomed into the summer sunrise. Well, I sold hot dogs under an umbrella in downtown Juneau that summer. And sometime in August, Mark Spitfire showed up at a stoplight on my corner. And he says, if you could have any kind of ice cream in the world, what would it be? I could barely catch my breath to say, daiquiri ice. And in mid-August, before he went to school, Mark stopped under my umbrella to give me a daiquiri ice ice cream cone and a 45 of a song we'd sung together on the beach. I know, right? <laughs> How can you not sigh over that through life's twists and turns? I mean, every time some attempt at a relationship like sputtered and stalled out, I'd be like, what would have happened if I'd said yes to Mark Ridgway in 1986? Fortunately, there were a few other Mark Ridgway sightings. In 1984, I got that internship with Perseverance, and I saw him walking down Franklin Street. But he'd already lived here two years. He was about to move to Portland with his betrothed. Then, in 1997, I brought my fiance to Juneau to show him beautiful Juneau town. He got the chicken pox on the plane and he was quarantined the whole time. <laughs> so I go to this party by myself at some friend of a friend's roommate's birthday party. Turns out I know the birthday boy. It's Mark Ridgway. No, he didn't get married, and yeah, bummer, he can't meet my fiance. I didn't get married either, and in 1999, I was on a ferry as a tour guide. Going up to Skagway, I ran into said roommate. You still roommates with Mark Ridgway? Yeah. He's still single? Yeah, let's call him right now. <laughs> um, no, no, that's cool, I'm dating a bus driver. I was just wondering, you know, how he's doing. A year and a half later, I'm on a date with said bus driver, and we run into Mark Ridgway in downtown Anchorage. Camp, how's it going? He looks at my bus driver up and down. So, what you got going on these days? Like, well, you wouldn't believe this, but I just took a job painting a set for Perseverance this winter. Um, and I don't know anybody there anymore. Like, what's going on for the holidays? We exchanged numbers. And anybody who saw us out as 2000 turned into 2001 knows that was a magical evening. And Mark looked me up a few times when he'd come to Anchorage. He'd look me up, we'd go out to dinner. But, you know, I couldn't understand why my bus driver was jealous. I mean, I'd known him for 14 years. Nothing had ever happened. We were just friends. A year later, Perseverance calls me, asks me if I'll paint another set. But this time I had to say, 
No, I'm way too busy. Life had a new challenge for me, and that challenge was called long-term commitment. Now, I had to let the bus driver go because he wasn't taking me anywhere, but I put my teaching degrees at the wheel. I got myself a French teaching job, an art teaching job at Greening Middle School. I promised I wouldn't budge for another three years at least. But when I hung up, I was really disappointed. I was like, oh my gosh, I'd been so busy working, I hadn't made any plans. I missed painting. I didn't have anybody to hang out with. That's when I realized I could uh, volunteer for that painting job. But before I called Perseverance back, I got up the nerve to call Mark Ridgway first. So I say, I'm thinking about taking this painting gig at Perseverance over the holiday again. He's cautious, but curious. I'm not sure I'm going to be in town. <laughs> well, I'm volunteering this time, so I'll have even more time than I did last year, and it might influence whether or not I take the job if you're around. His response? Drive my car, sleep in my bed, wear my clothes. I am supposed to be traveling with friends this holiday, but I might make it back in time for New Year's. And he did. So I picked him up. I got the keys from his roommate. I pick him up at the airport in his own Volkswagen van. He jumps in the passenger seat. I'm pulling away from the airport. I'm driving his car. I clutch, and he anticipates and shifts for me. Now, if anybody else did that while I was driving, I would freak out. But instead, I am struck with an elated sense of familiarity. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, it was you. It was Mark Ridgway. Of course. I had been wondering, who was that that I used to do that with? When we ran errands around Logic 101, we would both stick for each other's clutch. You know, I don't think we would have gotten very far if Mark and I had tried to go together in 1986. But 18 years later, we finally put it in gear we got married in 2003, and we've been clutching and shifting ever since. Thank you. A taste of freedom in her breast stirred her to contented bliss. Perhaps she waited just for this. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on January 13, 2016, at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Second Chances. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Dear Lord God, if it be thy will, I'll live and die on Chatfield Hill. All right, our next speaker is Steve Suing. Steve arrived in Alaska by chance from the Northwest and has lived in Southeast Alaska for over 16 years, living the last seven in Juneau. Steve's an active father of two sons, ages seven and a half and four, and has been in a committed partnership for close to 10 years. From the moment Steve awakens in the morning until he sleeps at night, he's intent on living life to the fullest extent that he can. He strives to make the most of any and every opportunity, especially those that connect him with people. Steve's a fanatic of any travel, tasty beers, being mentored, drag shows, and chicken wings. He's passionate about family, friends, and being active in communities. Please help me welcome Steve.
I lost my first close friend at the age of 20. It was the early days of February 1997 when I heard the news that my good friend Mark Nelson had passed and lost his battle with cancer. At the age of 20, when I had just left the house and was fairly, feeling fairly invincible and life was full ahead of me, this was a bit of a gut check. 15 months earlier, Mark had discovered that he had a tumor. And in true Mark fashion, he calls me at the school bookstore, lets me know, Steve, they found a tumor. I packed up my half of the dorm room, and I'm headed back to Canada. This was true Mark Nelson. The bookstore was five minutes away from our dorm room. But Mark was so sure that he was going to beat cancer that he thought a phone call would do. I quickly told my book manager about the situation. She said, yeah, go. Take as long as you need. So I quickly walked, actually probably ran, the five minutes to our dorm room. And when I entered the dorm room, every piece of Mark was gone, with the exception of Mark and his dad. He said, I'm not really sure what's happening, but I need to get back to Canada where I can be cared for, and I'll be in touch. Mark and I had only been friends for about a year and a half to that point. And it was kind of an interesting friendship because Mark was an athlete at the school. He was on a school scholarship. He was a good student. Uh, he was fairly likable, and he was fairly friendly. But the one thing I discovered about Mark upon meeting him the first time was that he was a bit of an introvert. And for an extrovert like me, that's a nice challenge. Mark and I quickly became friends. That year, we moved into the dorm. After Mark left that day that the tumor was discovered, I saw him two times. And the first time was a couple weeks later, a bunch of friends, um, you know, we were all 19 and invincible and scared as hell that someone could actually be fighting for their lives, that we want to go check in on Mark. I don't think the full diagnosis was known at that point, but Mark was his usual self, smiley, jovial, great sense of humor, as, as a lot of Canadians have. The second time I saw him was after he had finished his treatment for cancer in Vancouver. And we met um, near the place I was living then in Washington. And I remember walking the beach with Mark. And it was super uncomfortable because I had no idea what to talk to him about because I knew what had been happening in his life and a bunch of other crazy things had been happening to me. But Mark was just so easy to talk to. And he flashed his toothy smile all the, uh, many times throughout the conversation and didn't really seem too worried about things. He had survived the removal of the tumor, he had survived treatment, and he, he definitely felt like he had beat this. But he did tell me that he thought about dying a lot, and he knew that every day was a gift, and that he was appreciating spending time with me, and he was gonna do the same the next day with whatever life put in front of him. Now, like so many lessons that I was taught in my early 20s, you think the death of Mark would have been enough to to really impart something on me, and it did. I was confused. How could you be 20? How could you have a tumor? How could it be cancer? How could you die? But the thing that really stuck with me is that Mark wasn't scared of dying. Maybe he was, but he was intent on living every day to the fullest.
Now, two months after I found out about the death of Mark, I had my own near-death experience. I had to get a piece of paper from the college that we had attended in North Idaho, so I convinced two other friends to drive across the state of Washington through the night after we had worked quite a bit. And the last words I remember before the impact was, hey, I don't have my seatbelt on here in the back seat, so don't get in an accident. The next thing I remember is a shower of gravel hitting the windshield. And that gravel quickly awakened me and quickly prompted me to put on the brake because I had fallen asleep at the wheel going 70 miles an hour across I-90 in eastern Washington. I remember the sound of the impact. I remember the sound of the glass crushing. I remember the sound of the impact. I remember the sound of my friends screaming in the car. I remember the sound of the impact, and I remember the sound of metal scraping, and I remember the sound of the impact. I think we rolled four or five times in the car before it settled on its tires. I needed to get out of the car. So I jumped out of the car, and I remember there, sitting there for a couple moments, looking at the car and thinking, how am I alive? Quickly, I was pulled back to reality by the screams of my friend Sean, who was in the passenger seat. Now, as we had rolled multiple times, somehow Sean's arm and hand had gotten out of the car. I'm not sure if I've ever, I ever saw it, but I knew that it was fairly mangled. I assisted Sean until help arrived, which was fairly quickly. And I remember getting into the ambulance with Sean, looking back at the car, and the emergency personnel using the jaws of life to pry the roof off to get our friend Aaron out of the car. In two months, my friend had died, and I had almost died, and I was confused as hell. Two weeks after the accident, my dad visited me and showed me a picture of the car that he had taken when he had got some personal effects. And I knew two things. I knew one thing, from then on I was gonna live life to the fullest, and I had been given a second chance. Thank you. Our next speaker tonight is Caro Ling. She spent the last quarter century living in Alaska, investing most of that time with her two kids and husband in the bunny belt of the Mendenhall Valley. If you live there, you'll know where it is. She loves to dance, especially the tango, learned as a longtime student of ballroom dance with her husband at UAS. She's also a kundalini yoga teacher in training with plans of building her own yoga slash meditation slash dance slash theater. This is the Age of Aquarius studio. <laughs> She's occasionally seen on stage, including last month's Wush Kinadei open mic at the New Valley Library and in last year's Generator Theater, theater production addressing Juno's Homeless, A Lifetime to Master by Mary Ellison. Please welcome Carol. 
Thank you. Recently, I went down to San Francisco to see family, and I had the chance to visit with an um, old nemesis of mine, otherwise known as the stepfather, <laughs> Ivan son of a bitch. <laughs> That's what my sister and I used to call him back then. <laughs> Uh, he married my mom, and they had two sons. When my sister and I were um, not living with my dad, my biological dad, we lived with mom and Ivan. Beginning in the decade of the 60s through the Vietnam War, uh, we were at times a very happy family unit. The man that I was visiting was small, silent, and unsteady. He was not at all like the Charles Bronson tough guy that I had in my childhood memories. This man's eyes were vacant, his hand grip was weak, and conversations were non-existent. As we had a moment together, I reflected on how I had always wanted the chance to face this tyrannical bully from my past, to have that chance to talk in a heart-to-heart -heart with him or to finally have that chance where I would get to say, this is how it's going to be, and I'm going to tell you how it's done. Well, we never had that talk. Ivan, son of a bitch, <laughs> he came into my world by barging into my grandparents' house right in the middle of a big Filipino family gathering. <laughs> and demanded his son. Now, I was a couple of years older, or a few years older than my baby brother, and so I was confused to hear that this brutish, blue-eyed white man was my brother's father. I heard my auntie's panicky whispers. He was in prison. And He's out. He got out. The house was in an uproar. My baby brother was crying, slung over Ivan's shoulder and being carried away from us. My sister and I, we joined in the outrage, and we grabbed all the toys that Ivan had given us and threw them in the trash. We didn't know then that soon we would be spending the next 10 years on and off living with him in his house. Well, my mom had divorced my dad already, and she was separating from Ivan. And like a gorilla beating his chest, he had to make a big show of taking his son away from her. And that's when I carried my brother off. So living with Ivan, he 
had a blonde Fu Manchu. And he wore those shirts they called wife beaters. And he had this habit of leaving the garage door open while he was working out so that everyone in the neighborhood would know him for his formidable physique. I mean, he lifted weights and he was a runner. He was an all around tough guy. As teenagers, the boys that were our friends, they feared him. He did time in prison. No, he never harmed my sister and I. But once he, he picked me up off of my feet and, and this was just to demonstrate, see what can happen to you? And he'd lecture on and on. There's no excuses for stupidity. All our high school boyfriends were intimidated by the stepfather. So our main missions to get out of the house were just to get away from Ivan. So thank goodness every once in a while my sister and I got to live with my dad. And uh, he would get called off to duty because he was in the Navy. And as teenagers, that meant that we could just do anything we wanted. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, this lifestyle totally collided with Ivan's. And um, whenever we went back to live with them, it was a problem. After my 10-year-old brother died, my sister and I uh, moved out of there as soon as we could and never went back. But when I reached my turbulent 20s, the tough guy, cold confidence of Ivan's came in handy. Once again, he was intimidating old boyfriends and uh, he made me feel safe and helped me during a difficult time. And soon my life smoothed out and I started my own family. And I moved up to Alaska after my mom died. And I would go down to California to visit my brother over the years, but I rarely saw Ivan. Ivan had aged. Ivan had lost his memory very fast. I think that we both would have liked to have that second chance to face each other head to head as adults and hash things out. Pedantics and psychobabble ad nauseum. <laughs> It would have been a verbal battle worthy of song. I know it now. If there's a second chance, go for it. Our next speaker is Ella Sanga Milligrock, who also goes by Tom. 
is from Little Diomede, a small island halfway between Russia and the Seward Peninsula. His Nupiak, he's Anupiak, and his name, Elisanga, means wanderer of the earth. He's wandered between Little Diomede, Nome, Unalakleet, Anchorage, Kotzebue, Ketchikan, and Juneau. He has experience in public radio, commercial fishing, construction, college, and is a volunteer reporter, producer DJ for KRNN and KTOO. He's been married three times, helped raise five kids, and is now single and looking for a second chance. <laughs> Trust me, I did not write that. I had a bioist, and I, I can't seem to find him. He didn't show up tonight, I don't think. But anyway, uh, I want to thank you for this opportunity to uh, share a story of second chance. Uh, there's, I mean, I'm 60, so there's second chances. I, I can't even count the many times on my hands or my feet, okay, of the second chances that I've been uh, fortunate enough to have lived through and be able to talk about. Sometimes I think I'm a pretty tough guy and uh, feelings are hard to share or express and I would like to point out the person that has been very and the most instrumental in my life since I've been here and her name is Dorothy Tao. She's um, 90 and she has been like a, a, a stepmother, an aunt, uh, actually caring for someone uh, in their 90s, you know, and being able to humble myself I want to thank uh, Ms. Tao for uh, all the understanding. It's a great thing. So now getting into my story, I remember I was 10 years old uh, in Uniclete, and my uncle Mayak, yeah, bought this boat, this wooden boat. I mean, it was an old decrepit boat. I mean, it needed, we spent the summer working on putting it, fixing holes. My uncle was my uncle, you know. I was, he was a proud man, proud Eskimo, carver, a hunter, you know, and I'm 10 years old, I'm pretty gullible, I'm easy, you know? And so I helped him fix his boat, putty, and all the holes, and we're going out seal hunting, and we're all geared up, and it's cold, you know, and we're going out, and the boat starts sinking. We got a 50-horse Avenger in the back, you know, we're going out on the Norton Sound, and we've been out, you know, five, 10 minutes, and it starts leaking, and I'm 10 years old, and I really didn't notice it, but my uncle started just trying to act not so nervous or scared, it seemed like, and started, you know, bailing out water. Well, I didn't understand bail out water, okay, excuse me, at 10 years old, and it started getting, my, my feet were getting wet. I could see it was getting a little bit, a little bit, scary and uh, I wasn't sure what was going on and he said stop bail out bail out I'm, I went what bail out bail out and I went to go jump and he grabbed me I had just like this and said he threw me, put a bucket to my face and bail out bail out he was screaming and it was just it was a funny moment excuse me but you know I I have fished person in Metlakala and Heidelberg and Prince of Wells and stuff and I Never worked on a Persane boat, and it was an experience I'll never forget. Um, being 28 years old, uh, offered a job in Metlakatla to come down, and I was uh, going through divorce and other things, and I had a uh, one year, well, a year and a half um, son that was, uh, I had acquired, I guess, uh, through a divorce, and uh, 
but I took him down to Mellicala with me, and we uh, were fortunate to get some friends, meet some other friends that helped us stay at a place, and um, personating. You know, I wasn't, I was told I'd have no problem among the Indians there in Mellicala. I'd never been around Indians before, and uh, I thought that was pretty awesome to be accepted as, as fast as I was, and uh, getting on a boat called Linda B. I don't know if anybody of you recognize the name or not, but needless to say, personating, uh, I was the web man, I was the bills man, uh, God, I was uh, doing everything from pumping the bills, uh, every time we were running to find a spot, but being the web man, you know, you have to level out the web with the cork and also the lead, you know, and towards the fall season, you know, I'd done pretty good all summer. I know when I would look back, I, you know, I mean, we were going out towards Heidelberg, just outside of Heidelberg, and got our net out. We're pulling a net in, and you have to walk the web back and forth to make a level from the cork to the leads, right? And I'm walking back, I'm walking, I have to walk back and forth, back and forth, you know, watching both sides at the same time. And I'm pulling the web in, looking up, and I got jellyfish all over my face. I'm walking the web trying to shake all this off, and I walk off right off the stern. <laughs> right off, I'm, I went, hey! You know, and I was scared. I mean, 28 years old, and, and I hollered, I could have swore I hollered loud enough. And nobody looked, like, you know, hey, you know, Songa, what are you doing? Get back up here. And I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I'm going like this, and the web's still coming down in my face, right? And I got, I've got jellyfish, and I'm screaming and hollering, and then I, I grab the net, and it just pulls me right back up, right onto, the, right onto my pile. And I looked around, and get to work, Tom. You know, Songa, what are you doing? And... I just started going back like nothing ever happened, you know, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding, you know, I mean, I was 28 years old, first year greenhorn, thought I was tough, but when I went down with that web, I tell you what, I've never felt so scared in my life. I mean, I could look down, I was looking down, I could see the swirling of the prop, you know, as I'm going down, I'm grabbing and interesting, but, you know, having that experience, you know, it made me look at, you know, uh, at life just a little bit different after that. I mean, I, um, thank you. Our last speaker tonight is John Smith. Jonathan Smith, while born and raised in Connecticut, has lived in Alaska since he fled the madness of the East Coast for the madness of Fairbanks in 1985. He moved to Juneau from Holy Cross, Alaska in 1994 and has been teaching science at Juneau Douglas School ever since. For this reason, he is positive that there are a few faces in the audience that still might know him best as Mr. Smith. But tonight, he is just John the second to the youngest of five children, and the only one to live more than 15 miles from their shared birth home. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I am. If you grew up in my house, 
that was the way to end any argument. That's just the way I am. We were taught this by my mother. This was the end all be all. All you had to say is, that's just who I am. Because my mother believed that you were who you were, and that wasn't gonna change. Each of the five of us was given a label by my mother. My oldest brother, he was the quiet one. My youngest sister, she was the sweet, cute one. I, fortunately, was the good, smart one. My second to the oldest brother was the bad one. And this story is about the bad one. I also had an older sister who was the mouthy one that nobody wanted to deal with. Again, growing up, we had these labels and we pretty much lived to that potential. I studied very hard at school. I did all the chores my mother wanted me to do around the house. In fact, I did all the chores around the house. And uh, my brother lived up to the potential of being the bad one. Now, he was a really nice guy inside, very shy actually, but uh, he started getting in trouble at a very young age. And then he grew into that role, finding friends who also had that same moniker. So that by the time I left Connecticut when I was 18, he was already hanging out with a pretty rough crowd. They all had Harley Davidson motorcycles. They uh, all broke the law quite frequently and did a lot of drugs. In any case, uh, the story that I'm about to tell begins when I'm 24, I'm teaching out in Holy Cross, Alaska, and my brother is 29 and still living in my parents' house with the rest of my brothers and sisters. One thing I just mentioned about my brother is that he was shy, uh, and still is. He had, at, by this time, 29 years old, had been on one date in his entire life. It was his senior prom, and uh, the night that he was about to go on this date, he was thumbing through the phone book, and he asked my mother how you spell the, the name Yulin. And she looked at him and said, why do you want to know how to spell that name? He said, well, that's who I'm going out with. And she said, you realize that's your second cousin. So he never went out again. So he's 29 years old, living in the house. The picture of my brother that you have to have is that he's the motorcycle guy. He's got the chain wallet in the back pocket. He wears the same torn flannel shirt every day, the pants are all greasy, and he's been working at the same job that he got when he barely graduated from alternative school back in high school. My sister, my older sister at the time, had gone back to school to become a nurse. And my brother's got the long hair, he hadn't cut it in 15 years at this point. A Fu Manchu mustache, the full beard, you, you kind of get the picture. And my sister would tell him almost every day, you know, if you would just cut your hair, I have all these friends, I would get you a date. And he would say, I ain't cutting my hair for no chick. Right around this time, my mother got sick. She had major surgery and she was laid up at home in bed. And since I had gone to Alaska, there was nobody to take up the slack of doing all the chores around the house. For whatever reason, uh, my brother Greg decided that it was time for him to maybe do some of that, and so he started washing the clothes, walking the dog, taking care of things around the house while my mother was laid up in bed. Meanwhile, my mother is watching a lot of daytime television, and this is uh, 1992. For those of you younger folks in the audience, this is before the advent of reality TV. But there was a show on TV called Live with Regis and Kathy Lee. Regis Philbin and Kathleen Crosby. And they had invented this new idea called the makeover. 
And my mother was watching this. It was Thanksgiving time, and they were having this thanks for giving makeover that you would write in to them about somebody who had done something special in your life, and they would bring them to New York, and they would do their nails, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it would be all good. My mother thought it would be really cute. <laughs> yeah, you see where this is going. She wrote in um, about my brother, you know, doing the laundry, walking the dog, and of course she sent a picture of this guy. And again, this is for the older folks in the audience. He really did look just like a, a skinny David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, and not in his better years. And uh, they won. <laughs> and I think the miracle of the whole thing was is that I think in my mother's mind she knew something had to change. And I know that somewhere deep down in my brother he knew that something had to change. And the miracle was when she told him, he said, yeah, I'll go. So they went, I have the video, if anybody ever wants to see it, just see me. It's amazing. Um, this was Thanksgiving time. He, he greeted me at the airport when I came back for Christmas to visit. I walked right by him. I, I really did, I, I did not recognize him at all. $1,500 Bo Brummel suit, $500 uh, Armani, our glass frames the whole deal. So this is, this is a weekend, they get back, he goes back to work on, on Monday, back in his flannels and all that, and then on Friday night, the following Friday, less than a week further, uh, my older sister knocks on his door, she said, uh, get ready, I got you a date. He goes, what? I got you a date, you've cut your hair, I got you a date. Sue, she's upstairs. Anyway, he put on the suit, he put on the glasses, and he went out with Sue. He went out with Sue again, he went out with Sue again, and this Christmas, I just visited them for their 24th wedding anniversary. They have two children. And I think one of the most striking things about it is we were sitting around the table just a few weeks ago, and he was talking about all the friends that he had before the makeover. And the vast majority of them are either dead from car crashes, from alcoholism, or in prison. And he looks back at that time and he said, thank God I gave myself a second chance. Thank you. I had a chance to settle down, get a job and live in town, work in some old factory. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on January 13th, 2016. The theme for the evening was Second Chances. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Sewing, and Kristen Stouter. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. Till then, I'll travel alone And I'll make my bed with the stars above my head.